listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. One of the cool things about having dokusan or practice discussion or inner view or whatever you want to call them is I get to I get to kind of see in an individuated sense at least where people are and I can't tell you how remarkably cool it's been to have a crazy noisy coffee machine for our practice can't believe how many times that has come up and it's been this amazing metaphor for the real world. In other words, that we have this, this thing that acts as a distraction and, okay, we can talk about all this, you know, let's be present and let's be in the moment and let's look at our resistance and so forth. But when it comes down to real world stuff, man, it's not just a coffee pot. Okay. Really? Yeah, really. It never seems like just a coffee pot. It's imbued with more stuff the minute it gets real. And that's absolutely 100% true. Okay? But there's more to the story. The practice with the coffee pot, becoming intimate with the coffee pot as a distraction in meditation is identical to having a situation in our real life that is causing amazing uh, stress, uh, worry, pain, pick it. Our practice with the coffee pot is the same as our practice with what's real in the day-to-day. We can look at a retreat or intensive like this as simply a way for us to gain perspective on what we're facing back, back at home, as if it weren't here. Our home is where we stand. Our home is where the heart is or whatever you want to call it. But from here, we can actually gain this really cool perspective and go, oh, yeah, huh. Had I not been here, I wouldn't have been able to see that. Similarly, stillness practice is the retreat that we can carry with us no matter where we are in our day-to-day. So a retreat, you know, coming up here to the mountains and being together where we've kind of orchestrated this this pressure cooker of stillness helps us see just the way meditation is a pressure cooker for stillness and it helps us see. There will always be gurgling coffee pots in our life. I promise. The universe has this great way of giving us every single thing we need every single thing we need to test us. And the way, the middle way, the path, whatever you want to call it, is to get close to that which is creating resistance in us. We recognize it, start to resist it, then we release it, and then we integrate that release into our world. So whenever there's resistance, 
Whenever there's negativity, we watch for it. Watch for it. And then let that guide us. Our reaction to the negativity, it tends to soften the greater the degree of stillness, the greater the degree of perspective there is. So whether it's retreat up in the mountains or it's retreat on our cushion in the morning before we go to work or cushion in the afternoon because we can't seem to get up, whatever it is, whatever it is, having that retreat, having that perspective allows for intimacy constantly. So what is it that gets in the way of, of this intimacy? Because the coffee pot is what we, we use as kind of just saying, yeah, man, that was really tough. I could, could barely sit still. Kept wondering what it was, you know, going on for other people. And I turned it into this amazing snowball. It's like, how often have you been in a situation where, like, you have, like, a little bit of post-nasal drip or something, and then immediately we go, oh, my God, I can't get sick. <laughs> You know, I just, I cannot get sick. There's no way, I've got too much to do. And it's just post-nasal drip. But immediately, we start going into future mind. We're four days out going, if, if I'm healthy then, then I, and, and we're not sick yet. We just have post-nasal drip, all right? Which in and of itself is not that fun, but you get the idea. Can we be right with what's going on, very intimate with what's going on? <laughs> and then go from there. I keep thinking of this commercial I just saw the other day on TV um, where the guy, there's a snowball that starts happening of human bodies on the streets of San Francisco. Have you guys seen that one? Oh my God, it's just so funny. Um, because these people in these cars and everything is just like rolling down the street and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's oftentimes the way we behave in the world. Instead of it just being a coffee pot, that's making too much noise while we're trying to sit, damn it, it turns into something much bigger. Is this going to go on all weekend? Because I'm leaving or whatever. I mean, we've got all this stuff. We turn it into ego loves this because then it has something to work with. So um, to try to relate this then all into a bit of... Uh, a bit of practice. We get caught or taken out of intimacy. When I use that term, like, you know, uh, getting caught or whatever, getting caught means we're being pulled from, from the meeting and we're being, we're being pulled into a place of a defensive posture. We're being pulled, caught. We're being pushed back into, if you will, the bunker of our separate self-sense. So one, one thing that we can... Uh, we can actually think of, think about is uh, and I don't know whether it was one of you um, or not, but one one person asked me that. Well, so are you saying that that like it's not okay to get caught by something really beautiful? And of course it's okay. It's it's okay to get caught by something ugly too. It's okay to get caught, you know. But the teaching points us in a direction of freedom meaning that there's nothing for where we don't get caught. We don't get you know, pulled by anything, no matter how glorious it is, no matter how awful it is, no matter where we actually are able to keep this kind of still 
equanimity in the face of it all. That's intimacy. When we are caught, we are pulled from that. And there are traditionally five areas where we can look. Five things that keep us from this kind of radical intimacy that I'm talking about. We start off with desire. Okay? Now, desire can be on all sorts of different levels. Typically, we can look at desire as being, it can be like a deep longing. Okay? Deep longings, as long as you study them, okay, tend to lose a little bit of their gas, their, their, their push or pull. When we get all the way up from, from like deep longing into like something that's right on the surface, a sensual desire, that's, that's much more difficult. People that are really caught by their sensual desires continually really are in a situation where they can't face their own discomfort. And this is how addiction is born. Addiction, no matter what kind it happens to be, is always born from this inability to deal with the pain of being alive. The pain of just being here. So there's a reach. And once that dies down, there's another reach. Just don't let me stay here. In other words, that's ego saying, don't let me get exposed to the light of consciousness under any circumstances. And in order to keep that from happening, it avoids intimacy. And it'll do it with drink. It'll do it with shopping. It'll do it with, you know, spirituality, meditation, anything that can Cal be... Football. Cal football, definitely. No. <laughs> anything. Anything. It'll do it with anything that the, that that just keep me moving instead of stillness. And it's no surprise, at least looking at this explanation, it's no surprise it keeps us in the future. Sensual desire keeps us in the future. Hardcore desire of any kind, any kind of desire keeps us in the future. I want at some point in time, but not now. I want to have, right? Somewhere in the future, we have this desire, right? That keeps intimacy from happening. It allows our mind to write a story. It allows our mind to write a story, this, this, literally this fantasy of what in the future is going to bring us some degree of peace or some degree of ecstasy. It shuts down our ability to stay in the audience of our, of our situation, to stay as the witness. When we are staying in the audience, we're actually very intimate with what's going on stage because we're not caught by what's going on the stage of mind. We're not we're no longer a player. We're able to watch the whole thing from this much wider perspective. So when we like perpetually find ourselves giving in to sensual desire, okay, or desire in general, ego is winning, if you will, winning this, this, uh, uh, or it's overbalancing this move that we're trying to create, this stillness that we're trying to create, it creates movement when 
desire takes us over, keeps intimacy from happening. Intimacy is going to be that perfect balance. When desire starts weighing heavily on us, the intimacy begins to, with, with what's really going on in our life, begins to kind of start to shake. Another one, of course, is anger. We've got desire, and we have anger. Anger usually comes, again, probably no surprise, from the past. Something that has been done, and by golly, it hurt then, and it's not going to happen again. It's usually where anger comes from, from fear. So I'll give you an example. Let's imagine that you were slandered by somebody. Okay, so you're slandered by somebody, brooding over that slander, or letting it kind of consume you, is the brooding itself, is it getting caught? It's, it's a form of getting caught. And it's a resistance to what's actual, the brooding. Instead of recognizing fully the pain and actually experiencing the pain for all that it is, okay, we, we have a reaction to it, which is yeah, anger. Vengeance or uh, ferocity in general, they are always a response to feeling threatened. And if we feel actually totally inclusive in our expanse, there's nothing that can be threatened. The only way we can ever feel threatened, in other words, is if we actually have really hardcore uh, feelings of separation, a sense that we are indeed separate from everything else. Different situations obviously will bring this up in different ways, but just so you're really clear, when you feel negativity and it starts to show up as anger, boy, right there, that's a barrier to intimacy. That's a barrier to intimacy with spirit towards the unfolding, natural, spontaneous unfolding of spirit in your moment. The other one, uh, we've got desire, we've got anger. We also then have uh, boredom. Or when uh, I was in Thailand, we had this uh, this teacher, my lovely wife and I, who called it the technical Buddhist term for it is sloth and torpor. And he called it slota topo, <laughs> which was awesome. That's the, I thought it was the coolest way to hear it. Got a real bad case of slota topo. <laughs> and instead of saying people, he called this, he, what he's trying to say was good people. And instead, it was gopiban. Gopiban, watch out for the slaughter topo. <laughs> you got it, Ajahn. We'll do that. We'll, uh... <laughs> he was great. <laughs> and to be quite frank, there was something about his accent that almost like purified the whole thing. Because on the one hand, e ego couldn't play there at all. Ego was just either going to, I mean, you know, he worked so hard to understand and everything. And pretty soon he just went, you know what, I'm just going to just relax in this guy's presence. 
which was a better teaching than trying to understand, you know, his his discourse on the uh, the the five hindrances of awakening. It was really cool. So, slaughter topo. Remember that boredom. <laughs> boredom. On a personal level, this is big for me, because from the time I was tiny the impulse to be doing something was so huge and in that was a gift because it meant there was always a curiosity it got me here but there's also a tremendous curse that comes with that the need to constantly be moving okay to constantly be getting okay desire right goes back to the first one in many respects and when we don't you know when we just get to the point where it's like you know huh? I'm bored you know I've got everything and now I'm bored it's just it's such a really difficult thing if you've ever experienced that that point of just like God nothing seems to really hit me anymore. It's, a for, it's this form of depression. And it's in one of the ways I would say that the Buddhist teaching here um, actually misses the mark. Because in my experience, you know, as an educator, especially with young kids, like in junior high, for instance, when I taught eighth grade, I remember seeing so many kids that seemed bored. So many kids that seemed lazy. And this wonderful teacher, I said, you know, she's worked in a special ed, and I said, I, I just, I, I can't really, I don't know what to do with these kids that just seem overcome with boredom. And she said, well, actually, I think I used the word lazy, laziness and boredom, I guess, is the conversation she and I had. And she kind of, in a knowing way, just kind of smiled. She goes, yeah, you know, I've never met a lazy or a bored kid. I was like, huh? She goes, I've met a depressed one. I've never met a lazy or bored one. And so I think in a Western context, we look at this depression as being kind of the, this perpetual state of always unfulfilled. You know, that just nothing seems to hit. And the darkness that kind of comes from that puts us in this space of boredom. And it can keep intimacy from us so because we're not we're no longer participating when we're in that place. We're caught by the existential, uh, you know, angst of our of our you know position, the gaping maw of life. It's just nothing. Nothing works. Nothing, you know, gets kind of kind of sad. It's especially true for people who define themselves by what they've achieved or their activities that they do, you know, especially if they, if they are in one of these, these places, and it's so common. I mean, every one of us knows people like this who really look at almost an experiential materialism as a way of showing who they are because they've done the following. You know, that person, if they don't have something to do, then where are they? Stillness to that person means death. When in fact, stillness is the art of being more fully you.
Restlessness is another one. Or worry. You can look at those two things. It's very, very similar. Worry, I think, is probably a more uh, rich way of articulating this because worry, if you think about it, is all about what hasn't happened yet and may. What hasn't happened yet but might happen. This is a great way, obviously, for the ego to just hunker down as long as it's got that to hang on to. What happens if, you know, whatever, pick it, you know, what, and, and then if, right, now we're back to the coffee machine, you know, our world, our life, when it's actually really taken by worry, and this seems to be really common among a lot of the, um, the spiritual students that I, I work with is constant. It's like, yes, but if, right? And what's, what's happening is, is there's this immediate, instead of like being here, there's this not being here and being over there and really spending all this energy when intimacy is back between the thoughts as opposed to locked in with the thoughts. So this desire, this anger, this slaughtertopo, <laughs> the boredom, okay? This restlessness and worry. All these things just keep working, keep working, keep working to help us refuse stillness. We can play the game. We can come to retreats. We can go to, th you know, Monday nights, hang with the bald guy hang with other people, other great teachers, literally. I mean, we can become, there again, kind of these spiritual materialists where, well, yeah, I've worked with so-and-so and so-and-so, but ultimately all we really need to do is become still. And these, these, these qualities I'm talking about are the very the things that will prevent us from ever really unlocking or unclogging those places where we are truly, truly stuck. Perhaps the most significant of these uh, is doubt. We can cling to doubt. Doubt can catch us. Doubt, hardcore doubt, man, prevents, it just, it puts the brake, it's like the horns of the bull just dig right in. Or I guess in Buddhist parlance, it's like the ox's horns just dig in and they're not moving. We can think of doubt, I think, most effectively as an attachment to a story of success. Doubt is, a, is an attachment to a story of success. Whatever that story that you've got going on in your head of how it should look, and if it's not looking that way, boom, ego just throws a chunk of doubt on the wall and says, see, it's a mess. It's not right. This is not the way it should look. It's supposed to look this way. This doesn't mean you shouldn't have healthy skepticism. Please, always have healthy skepticism. Everything that I say or anybody else says, you should absolutely have a healthy skepticism. That's actually what, that's what enlivens the teaching. That's what makes it dynamic. Is when you look at it and go, uh, wait, hang on. In fact, if you're not doing that, 
are you being lazy? Are you, are you falling into kind of this place of slot de topo? <laughs> is there a boredom or are you afraid of being seen? Or is, what is it that keeps you from really getting into your most sacred question? Is it doubt? Uh, I, either self or, or towards me or towards the teaching? I don't think I, I just don't have a question. Really? Really? Oh, okay. That's really cool. You have no questions? Okay. Go home. I mean, I say that lovingly, but it's like, really? I mean, doubt has this amazing way of, and I think, I think one of the cool things about doubt is it can have so many different masks. Doubt can be really obvious with the kind of the no way, but it can also be kind of the, this low grade skepticism that's totally egoic. It's like the ego is like behind a bush and it's just waiting. It's just waiting for something and then bam! And to see, this is not right. And then the practitioner oftentimes just doesn't say anything. They just go try to find a new teacher. And that's fine, I think. I think that's really cool. But it's always going to work out better if you recognize that if you're clinging to doubt, if you're clinging to doubt, it doesn't matter what teacher you sit in front of. It doesn't matter what experience you have at all. Watching our doubt, that's our freedom from it. Because then it becomes a discriminating awareness that we have as opposed to something we're locked into, as opposed to a haven for ego. Watching our worry frees us from it. Because that which is watching the worry is not worried. That which is watching the worry is not caught by the worry. That which is observing the boredom is not caught by the boredom. It can't be bored. That which is observing the boredom cannot be bored. Awareness is not bored. Awareness is constantly engaged. Constantly engaged. Ego gets bored. But awareness doesn't. Anger. Think about this. Anger, as long as it's watched, it loses, it loses its, its intensity. That which is watching anger is not angry. That which is watching anger is actually what transmutes that anger into something much softer. Because fearlessness comes when there is presence enough to watch. With fearlessness, there's no such thing as anger. With desire, that which is watching the desire is not the desire. That which is watching the desire is totally free from the grip of desire. I found myself today up at the, uh, the bookstore this is kind of low-level desire. But I was in there, and I was like, there is so much cool stuff in here. And I immediately, 
I was glad that we're observing silence because I would have been just, oh man, yeah, we could use that and that and that and that. And the saga really needs to have one of the, and I stopped. It's like, oh, there it goes, man. That kept me from actually just quivering with the richness of the experience of looking at all this cool stuff. Instead, it became something that my ego was jumping in to try to manage. Jump in and try to, you know, try to, yeah, okay, we can do that. I can't really afford that. That would be, maybe if I, mm, right? So start there. Start in the bookstores of your life. <laughs> start in the bookstores of your life. And then, or better yet, start with the coffee machines in your life. Move up to bookstores. Okay, and then from bookstores, go to family gatherings where there are going to be a lot of people who have alcohol problems. Okay, that's where we go. That's we, if we can do it there. <laughs> There's only partial T's there because that can be almost the most difficult. That's the end of the line. The minute we can carry this grace and ease into family situations, something big has happened. Okay. Something big has happened. And that's because the stories that have been authored about family are the ones that are the most heavy, the deepest. Those are the ones that involve childhood conditioning. Those are the ones that involve our parents. Those are the ones that involve their parents. It's all carried into this mix. So, intimacy, then, with our experience, Intimacy with every bit of it. Intimacy with our desire, with our anger, with our boredom, with our worry, with our doubt. It sets us free. It keeps us from indulging the egoic tendency to run like crazy the minute awakening is near. When you were talking about depression, my experience has been, or I understood that depression was anger turned in, inward. Mm. So that I don't. Um, I don't want to clear the relationship between depression and sloth and torpor. Yeah. In other words, that laziness, <coughs> laziness kind of unfolds as a symptom of depression, as a symptom, as you say, of anger directed inward. In other words, the kind of the, we can take all of these hindrances that I'm talking about here, every single one of them, we can kind of squish down and say it's fear-based. Okay? It's fear-based. And fear is the the reason ego exists. It's its function. Fear is the function of ego. Its job is to be afraid and threatened and then manage those, those threats in ways that help stave off attack. Okay? So if we can look at, at the way you say, you know, uh, anger directed inward is actually what darkens us into this place of, of depression. Depression is kind of a hard word to use because it's so loaded. But let's just stick with it for the sake of, of this discussion. 
if we look at anger directed inward, what we're talking about is the fear reaction, okay? But instead of going outside the bunker, it's occurring within the bunker itself. So the disease, dis-ease, meaning not balanced, the lack of balance on the inside of the bunker means that there is actually an ego tearing itself apart. And when ego tears itself apart, it's in a great space because now it really has a job. It's created, it's created its own work by gouging itself, right? As long as it's got a problem, as long as it's got something to defend against, it's in good, good stead. But the minute that threat can come into the bunker and it can actually start self-inflicting pain, it's perpetually going to have a job. It creates work for itself, just like lawyers can do. Did I just say that? <laughs> so, so essentially then, when, when, we, when we direct anger inward, okay, when ego brings it into the bunker, then we're in a situation where there is, uh, what arises is a sense of hopelessness. And that hopelessness usually manifests as like, you know, does it really even matter? I'm bored. Nothing's, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So, so that's kind of that's kind of where it comes from. It's not. It's not. None of these are separate from fear. None of them. None of them. So, like, we could actually just say the one, the one thing. The one hindrance then is fear. And fear will always be present as long as we see ourselves separate from the universe. As long as we don't see that everything arises within us, fear will be there to varying degrees. As your practice gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, you'll find that it's less and less and less and less. Right, but this awareness uh, uh, that we've, what well, we've been kind of working with, the quote that we started with last night: "All things arise within your awareness." So all things arise within you, or if anything arises within your awareness, it arises within you. Right? When that really, really starts to soak you up, just soak through. There's no fear. And we have a fearlessness in us that approaches the world in ways that don't really ever get caught by doubt. They don't get caught by boredom. They don't get caught by anger. They don't get caught by desire. They don't get caught by anything. <laughs> I've got a question that's over here, but in order to get there, I've got to ask some, you got it. some questions to clear up some sure. potential misunderstandings. Stillness is the same thing as spirit. Is awareness... So is movement. Stillness is the same thing as spirit. So is movement. Nothing is not spirit. Okay? I thought that spirit didn't move. You're right, but it gives birth to movement. It's True. it's within movement, okay. right? So then is is 
spirit and, and awareness the same, or is spirit aware? I would say both are true. Both, in other words, both spirit, spirit is awakening, right? Spirit is the all. Right. It's awake. It's, there's a consciousness to it. Okay? But since it doesn't move, mm -hmm. it can't be the generator of, of, of thoughts. It, it, because thoughts are movement, right? It's the generation of all that moves. Spirit, spirit is the fertile ground from which all things spring. Okay? And in their, in their springen, okay, I suddenly have an urge to speak with a German accent, but I won't. But in their, in their springing, they're still infused with spirit. They're still infused with stillness. Okay? Stillness, spirit, it's never not there. Okay? It's never not anywhere. However, movement dances within, okay, that spacious stillness, and that spacious stillness is what infuses all that moves. That right there, right there, Brad, that's which, what you just, when your eyes went like, that's it. Okay, so when, when the mind stops like that, like yours just did for that brief second, that's stillness. Okay? And the not knowing prior to the, well, let's see if I can figure this out. Prior to that, the immediate thing prior to that, that's the gift that you have to give all beings. Right? That's, that's the power of koans, is they stop the mind. Exactly. That's why koans stop. Exactly right. A koan is a puzzle that you can't figure out. It puts you into the space of, uh, uh, uh. That's it. That's it. And then when you get comfortable with that not knowing, you become infused with wonder. And when you're infused with wonder, you are totally comfortable in the mystery. And when you're totally comfortable in the mystery, hindrance? Excuse me? You know? I mean, you meet up with them all the time. Even when you're comfortable in the mystery, there's something to pull the rug out from it. Fortunately, this allows our practice to keep deepening. Now the question I was <laughs> is, do all desires spring from or, or are at the end of the control of ego? Are there some, are there, can you have a non-egoic desire? Yes, you can have a non-egoic desire. You ready? Yeah. You guys ready for this one? To be still. To awaken. Okay? Because what's, what is awakening? Awakening is expansion, right? Well, what is the movement of the universe? Expansion. It's expansion. The universe is expanding at an ever-increasing rate. Why? Of course, then, as long as we're part of the universe, and last time I checked, we are. Why don't we? It's natural. And so what happens is there's this, there's this self, selfless thing that kind of just starts burning, okay? And that fire burns differently in different people. I'm convinced that some people couldn't care less about it at all. I could not care less, right? And that's fine. The people who really care a lot about it, okay, they usually have a lot of ego mixed in with it. Greed is usually there in the mix, 
right? But the impulse itself is, is the universe. It's the universe dying to recognize itself through your own experience. People who are able to kind of, kind of take a little bit of, take a little bit off of that greed to awaken. I want to experience Satori, you know, when they, they soften and it's like, you know what? I, maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. But for the time being, I'm just going to sit on my cushion. Right? The ego's not involved, but it's not not involved. It, they're, they're walking the razor's edge. They're walking that tightrope, right? Until there's nothing that's walking the tightrope, and there's no tightrope, but there's just this awakening. That's what spirit is. Spirit's recognized in that moment because it's not seen as a tightrope. It's not seen as a destination. It's not seen as a source. It's not seen as a Walenda. It's not seeing as walking. It's not seeing as walking. It's just <gasps> the radiant, effervescent, perpetually glowing explosion of the Big Bang that happens again and again and again and again and again. And we get to dance with that. <laughs> All these uh, emotions that you're talking about, um, would you say that they're all necessary and as long as you recognize them, you can keep them, I don't say in control. Um, worry and, and fear of something in the future motivates you to do something about Right. So I guess it, is it if you become immobile mm. because of, what, of the worry. Right. Right. So as you're doing something about it. I would say if you're if you're motivated to do something out of fear, your motivation is probably tinged with a fair amount of ego. Okay. If you're motivated to do something out of compassion, if you're motivated to do something because it's an appropriate response. That's, in other words, it's, it's movement that's informed by stillness consciously. Then you're actually working to help the evolutionary impulse of the universe unfold. If, on the other hand, your activity is, I'm afraid this is going to happen, therefore I must do this, you're back into the egoic reactive patterning that veils awakening from our side. Yeah, right, right. Because you can't. And I can't. And none of us can control what's going to happen. But what we can do is respond in a way that is colored with the richness of compassion and the wisdom that we are all one, that everything arises within us, that we're totally connected. Now that may sound like a lot. I look like I just lost everybody here. And I didn't mean to do that. But it's just, <laughs> it's, in other words, if fear is a motivator, if fear is a motivator, it's any result is going to be egoic. It's going to, there's going to be an egoic orientation to the result. And when we get into that space, we find that harm can be done, either to ourselves or others. When, on the other hand, we are totally open to the experience, we accept it 
as it is, we accept the experience, oh, this is what's happening. Not that we have to like it or dislike it, but we, oh, this is exactly what's happening. We see with clarity, then that clarity informs something in us that's deeper. And that response that comes from that deep, open clarity is invariably helpful. And it invariably allows the universe to work through us in a conscious way. That's what moves mountains. That's how Gandhi got the British out of India. That's how Martin Luther King fundamentally altered United States history. So we just kind of tap into that. Having said that, fear is the natural state of ego to a greater or lesser extent. Ego is always going to be afraid. Fearlessness, on the other hand, my guess is that any of us who've experienced activity that comes from fearlessness, fearless activity usually touches lives in ways that we might not even know how magical it's been. We might hear years later, remember when we were, it's like, oh my God, no, I don't. I don't remember that and thank you for saying so, but I, right? There was no ego invested in it at all. It just happened. It just kind of spontaneously came through us. And at that point, we're, we're God's vehicles. We literally are a vehicle of God, as opposed to a vehicle of me who is trying to have God work through him. We become this just kind of an open channel for the flow of blessing. So do you have about our minds being the future motivating us now? Yeah. You're right. That's exactly right. That's exactly why what this teaching really is about is getting beyond the mind. So in other words, what we do is we inform the mind. We, we, we literally just infuse it with now so that the mind then no longer actually governs us from the future position, pulling us along into a direction that it thinks is the way to go. Because the mind is thinking, right? And we can use mind and ego interchangeably. Whenever you hear my, me say mind, you can think ego or vice versa. So what happens is if we pay very close attention to the now and we act appropriately, okay, we respond appropriately in the now, from the, uh, consciously, we infuse our moment with grace, okay, and ease, non-attachment, openness. Guess what happens to that future? It unfolds in ways that actually don't just help us evolve. It helps all beings evolve. So the best way to take care of that future is to take care of this now. It's going to take care of itself. We have nothing really to offer the future except this moment, okay? And we can let our ego go there. We can let it go and, you know, jump around, and throw tantrums or whatever about some future thing that may or may not happen, okay? As long as there's presence enough to go, oh, <laughs> there you go again. That was Ronald Reagan, by the way. There you go again, you know? <laughs> We let our interior awakened Ronald Reagan look at the future mind, okay, and see it for what it is. And know that the minute we pull back into this moment, 
okay, and live from there, the future will take care of itself. It doesn't mean we ignore it, but it also does not mean that we, we live our life there, ignoring this. What we do is we let this be our center of gravity. And we can then use ego here when we need to, here when we need to. That is exactly right. That's the practice. It's not easy. It's not easy. But it gets easier. Yeah. Yeah. Go team. <laughs>